In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. This passage from Romans 7 is the reason I am a Christian. Yes, there are many powerful passages in Scripture, passages that cut right to your heart with uh, insight and conviction and comfort. But this one, these verses for me, are at the top. I can still remember the first time I heard them. I was a teenager, curious enough about the Christian faith to be paying attention in church, but not so formed by it as for things to have become overly familiar. Like any adolescent, I felt that life was terribly tumultuous, and I was particularly distressed by the fact that I was seemingly not in control of my thoughts and my emotions and my actions. I would wake up in the morning with every intention of being good and kind, and by the time I got to the breakfast table, I was snapping at my mother about something or other. <laughs> so when I sat in church and I heard, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. I was like, hey, that's me. <laughs> I felt seen and understood, and in that way, comforted that someone else, maybe even many other people, felt this same way and experienced this same excruciating conundrum as they tried to live their lives. Now, I'd like to be able to tell you that eventually I outgrew this phase, that it was merely the, the hormonal turbulence of adolescence that brought on this inability to keep to the good and the right in my words and deeds, but of course, that is not true. Paul was long past adolescence when he wrote these words, and the truth is the sin that dwells within us and causes such misfires is not a phase, but part and parcel of who we are. So I stand before you today, long past adolescence, thank goodness, and yet still suffering from the affliction of one who wants to do what is good, but who does not always do so. I figure I might as well make this confession to you now, because sooner or later you will discover it for yourselves. <laughs> Perhaps you already have. <laughs> it is inevitable in this life, especially in this life of ministry, with all the time that we will spend together, that despite my best intentions and with every effort, towards goodwill, that I will fail you as your priest. In what I say, or how I say it, in what I do, or how I do it, 
Decisions you may take issue with, jokes that miss the mark, comments that break down rather than build up. Especially with me up here spouting these many words with you every other week, I'm bound to say something that you disagree with, that you do not like, or perhaps even without meaning to, that causes you hurt or offense. And for that, I am deeply sorry. It is never my intention to hurt or offend, to inspire and encourage, maybe even enlighten, yes, to stimulate and challenge and provoke, perhaps to argue, exhort, and yes, to entertain, but never to hurt or offend. But I know I have done that in my time as a priest. I remember one sermon I gave years ago now at one of my previous churches. It was Earth Day. So I preached on climate change, spoiler alert, not a fan. And afterwards, in the shake the hands line, most people were being their usual polite selves, but one parishioner rushed up to me, grabbed my hand, face flushed, pointed in my face, and said, that sermon was all wrong. And then he rushed off without another word. And, and while I was trying to get across an important message, it was clear that I had hurt him deeply. And that pained me deeply because I cared about him. This is but one example. I can't tell you how many times I have reflected on things in all areas of my life that I have said or done, whether it was in a sermon or a meeting or a conversation or any other aspect of life, and wish it could have gone differently. And I know enough to know that while I, was, I will always try to do better and to learn from these situations, I will likely stumble again because, like Paul, even though I can will what is right, I cannot always do it. Because time and again, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. But don't worry, because you're going to do it too. That's Paul's biggest message from this passage of Romans. That all of us are similarly afflicted. Despite your best efforts, you may fail me. You may fail one another in what you say or do, in how you say or do it. This too is to be expected in a community based on and dependent on close interactions and relationships and encounters. It's inevitable. And it's okay. It is. I recently read a book by the contemporary Christian author David Zoll, Z-A-H-L, who is a campus minister and author based at Christ Church in Charlottesville. The book is called Low Anthropology. And in it, he argues for an approach to life and to our fellow human beings that is based very much in this particular passage from Romans, an assumption that despite our greatest and truest efforts, people will fail to always be their best selves, will not always do the right thing the kind thing, the caring thing, the generous thing. This is contrasted with a high anthropology, which is where we expect everyone is perfect. 
and we are sorely surprised when it turns out that people make mistakes, that even our loved ones can disappoint us, and that we all suffer this similar affliction of imperfection. The problem, as he tells it, is one of expectations. And at first glance, this low anthropology may seem uh, pessimistic or even bleak. But as Zal spells it out, it is actually the key to a more gracious view of others and of yourself. Because rather than despairing at our inability to always get it right, a low anthropology actually leads to a life that is more understanding and tolerant and happy. Because instead of being repeatedly disappointed when human beings turn out to be human, that is fallible and limited and error-prone, we are understanding of such failures and then delight and celebrate those moments when we do get it right when we can transcend our sinfulness and show the goodness that is in us and the love that we long to share with the world. I find this idea of anthropology helpful, a helpful approach to, to our fellow human beings and ourselves because it is realistic. Relationships built on a high anthropology assume that you will never be disappointed, disagree with, or be hurt by others, and this can lead to a difficulty in reconciling those expectations with the humanness of the person. But a relationship that is built on low anthropology is more honest, and thus ultimately more lasting. Because a low anthropology which takes seriously our inability to always execute on even our best wills and wishes, this opens the door to things like grace and mercy and forgiveness, things which are the true foundations of love. For you can admire someone you see as perfect, but you cannot really love them. Because so long as you think they are perfect or expect perfection from them, you are not really loving them, you're loving an idea of them. This is a message I always try to get through to the couples I am married. They may feel like those young lovers in the Song of Solomon, right? But what I try to convey is that if their relationship is to last, it needs to be based on reality. And the reality is, as perfect as their spouse is for them, they are not perfect. And if you are to love them, really love them, you are to love their imperfections as much, if not more, than their perfect bits. That is what you are vowing when you get up and say yes to loving this person. And it is what you are saying yes to in a less fancy and a less formal way, I will admit, when you become a part of this church community. Hoping for the best from your fellow members, but understanding when we get less than that. And yet loving them all the same. Because this is ultimately the way that Jesus chooses to love us aiming in the direction of perfection, but not expecting. Knowing us 
and loving us despite, or perhaps even because, such knowledge reveals our failures and our failings. And that is why Paul exclaimed at the end of this letter, when he has reached a moment of despair as to the state of his sinful soul, who will rescue me from this body of death, he says. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I said at the outset that this passage was the reason I am a Christian, and that is because more than just a feeling of a sense of comforting camaraderie with Paul as he struggled and failed to do the right thing. I rejoiced in this knowledge, that despite my repeated failings and failures, Jesus still loved me, still died for me, and still gives me the chance to do better and to do good. No matter how many times I'm going to mess it up. For as Paul says earlier in this same letter, even though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God still proves his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the essence of a lovingly low anthropology. A love that can bear all our sinfulness and still remain. That is the kind of love that Jesus has for us. And I hope it can be the kind of love that we have for one another. Amen.